Jesus is teaching, and someone says to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now, Jewish law stated that the oldest son would get a double portion of the inheritance after a father died. And so this is likely the younger brother who would still inherit, but he would be getting half as much as what the older one would get. Um, It's likely a younger brother who is in some kind of dispute with the older one about what his fair share should be. And we still hear about these kinds of disputes today taking place, right? And they go to Jesus. Jesus responds and says, friend, who set me to be a judge over you? In other words, you've got to work this out for yourself. Jesus doesn't just leave it there, like most of us probably would. He also says, and goes on to teach, he says, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And I love that phrase because right there, Jesus tells us that there is more than one kind of greed. And then Jesus adds, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I mean, what an interesting way of working out that dispute. And then he told them a parable. Now, it must have been great to hear Jesus' teaching, but it might have also been really frustrating at times because Jesus gets asked a question, and notice how he completely avoids it, really. Right? He, he actually doesn't help this man that he's asking the question. So what he does is he says, be careful of greed. And now I'm going to tell you a story. I'm not going to answer your question. I'll ask you one, and I'll tell you a story. A parable is a story. Um, you know the word parallel, right? Parable is the same kind of idea. It's a story that comes alongside. It's a story that illuminates something about life or about faith or about God. And rarely do parables uh, address a single uh, point or situation. Sometimes we like to try to match parables up with like, sort of this one-to-one correlation, but rarely do parables work that way. What they tend to do instead is to sort of spill all over the place and point in all kinds of different directions. And Jesus was a master with the parable, and he seemed to apply them all over the place in different ways. And so we're going to look at this this one in particular, this story that Jesus tells. It begins with that the land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what should I do for I have no place to store my crops? It starts with a problem. And I want you to notice what the problem is not. Okay? It's not a problem that the man is rich. It's not a problem that he gets an abundant harvest. What is the problem, then? What's the problem? Right, storage is the problem. See, Aaron was there two years ago and remembers the sermon. No. Um, yeah, his problem is storage. He, he doesn't have anywhere to store such an abundant harvest, right? His place is too small to store all his stuff. He's rich, but he wasn't anticipating being so rich that he's running out of space for everything he has. Storage is his problem, and so he goes about solving it, and we get to hear his inner thoughts about this. 
So it says, then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Problem solved. Life will be good. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? What is the man's real problem? Now, now before we answer that, we, there's this uh, word soul that he keeps using. I'll say to my soul. That is the Greek word psyche. And in Greek, it means life. It can mean soul. It can mean spirit. It can mean self. Um, it might even mean something like our conscious personality. Um, it carries the idea of, of the totality of a personal life, the, the true uh, who you are. Okay, that's kind of what this, what this uh, word conveys in Greek. In verse 19, it says, I will say to my psyche, and then in, uh, in verse 20, we get the word repeated again where God is talking to him. He says, you fool, this very night your psyche is being demanded of you. Okay. Now, as you think about the man's problem, let, let me read uh, this, this part to you again, okay? And listen to, to how I'm going to read it about what this man's problem might be. So this is the man talking. He says this. What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my psyche, Psyche, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What is the man's problem? Me, 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 I, I, I. His problem is, is that he knows full well that his possessions are his possessions. Well, whose else's could they be, right? That's his field. It's a, like... But that, it, it, that's the question God asks him, right? This very night, your psyche is being demanded of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Yours still? Tonight, you're going to die, God says. And then, who does all this stuff belong to then? Or another question. Who does your psyche belong to? To whom do you belong? And this is perhaps the root of it all. Because the man thinks he has his own life with his own stuff. But his life and all the things he has actually belong to somebody else. They belong to God. And it can all be over in the blink of an eye. What's interesting about this phrase is that it doesn't say that, that God is demanding the man's life, as in, for sure, it's about him dying. The phrase allows for the possibility that it is the possessions themselves that are demanding the man's psyche. In other words, God may be saying, your decision to build more storage space for your abundant harvest, that just sealed the fate of your soul. Now your psyche belongs to your stuff, and all your possessions are going to kill your soul. It's probably not what it means, but the Greek sort of allows for that interpretation, which is kind of an interesting way to look at it. 
So think about this again. His problem isn't wealth. His problem is his relationship to his wealth, right? He thinks it is all his to eat, drink, and be merry. And he doesn't allow for the possibility that he has been being asked by God to use his wealth for something quite different. See, the primary understanding of wealth for those who follow Jesus is stewardship. That means that all our possessions, even our own psyches, even our own selves, they belong to God and have been entrusted to us by God so that God's will can be carried out through our use of them. So Jesus says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because greed is all about us holding tight to our possessions. Yet they are meant to be used for God's glory and God's purposes. And as we lay this parable alongside our own lives, we may, if we're honest, discover that we too are not great stewards of what God has given. That perhaps we have not done what God would want us to do with what God has given us. And so we might want to ask, well, what does God want us to do with our stuff and our money? And even if we can answer that question, even if we have clarity about, okay, I think this is what God wants me to do with my things and my money, even if we can answer that, we may then want to ask, well, what then holds us back from doing what God wants? Jesus tackles the second question first, what holds us back from doing what God wants with the wealth that we've been given. And Jesus' answer is anxiety. Anxiety has to be dealt with. Jesus recognized that, in fact, even though his parable is about a wealthy man, he recognized that he wasn't actually talking to supremely rich people. He was talking to everyday people with everyday concerns, like, are we going to have enough money to get by this month? Or do we have enough to buy food and to buy clothing? And Jesus says, even those things need not be a source of great anxiety. Jesus says, don't worry about them. And he says, because your psyche is more than food. Your life is more than stuff, he says. And he gives some arguments about why you shouldn't worry. Number one, God feeds the birds, and those birds don't have storehouses or barns or RSPs. I'm paraphrasing what Jesus says. Or high-paying jobs. What makes you think that God won't feed you? He feeds the birds. And you're way more important than birds. He says, look, look at the lilies. And remember Solomon. He was the richest, wisest person on the planet ever. And his clothes never looked as good as the way God clothes the flowers. And if God clothes the flowers and grass this well, and it's just flowers and grass, which will be dead next fall, What makes you think he won't provide for you? So number one, God feeds the birds. Number two, God clothes the flowers. And number three, Jesus says, does worrying add to your lifespan? Like, is it useful? If it could add to your lifespan, it might make some sense to worry a little bit. But why worry about things that don't even matter in the long run? 
Jesus' point, it actually doesn't work to worry. Now, Jesus' points here are not intended to teach us how to reduce anxiety or reduce worry. It's to show that worrying about things, about money, about food, about clothing, or about whatever it is, those things, that, that worry is what stands in the way of doing what God wants. We worry about our lives, we worry about money, we worry about mortgages, we worry about housing, we worry sometimes even where our next meal is going to come from, we worry about schooling, we worry about relationships, and in all of that, when do we take it to God and do some trusting of God with those things? If we can begin trusting God to provide for those things for which we worry, what change would happen in us? If we can give out if we can give our earthly worries over to God, then we can begin to make decisions about our lives and our possessions and our money based on what God wants us to do. Jesus says it's the nations of the world that strive after these things, food and clothing, uh, representing worldly things, whatever those worldly things are. It's the nations that strive after these things. And then he says in verse 31, instead, strive for his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Strive for or seek the kingdom. This is what God wants you to do. This is answering question number one. What does God want me to do? A few years ago, I was listening to a speaker and an author named Shane Claiborne, and he talked about how it's become a particular preoccupation among Christians that is, we want to know what God's will is for our lives. Particularly young Christians, young people are asking things like, well, what does God want me to do? And they mean, you know, does God want me to be a doctor or a plumber? Uh, does God want me to get married or to remain single? Um, all, those kinds of life questions, that's become sort of this Christian preoccupation. But Claiborne described God's will quite differently. He said it's more like this. It's that God's will is for the world. God's will is for people, for the well-being of people, for your neighbor, for your enemy. God is for those people. And so regardless of your occupation, regardless of your financial situation, the question is not, you know, God help me figure out what I should do. It's more like, how can I do God's will today? How can I seek and build the kingdom? What does God want me to do? It's less about vocation and far more about action. What am I going to do today to serve God, to build the kingdom? What am I going to do tomorrow to do that? And we can sometimes spiritualize this way too much. We, we may say, I'm willing to part with money and possessions, and that's what God is after, a willing heart, that spiritual willingness to, like, yes, I would, I would walk away from, if I got that big harvest, I, I wouldn't build big barns. I would give that away. And it's the spiritual willingness that he's looking for. But Jesus is, is really direct about it. And it must have been sometimes hard to listen to Jesus. Jesus, in verse 33, he says really directly, sell your possessions and give alms. And this is what he's saying to his disciples. They didn't have very much. Jesus says the best way to be in God's will, the best way to strive for his kingdom is to give money away. That's what he says right here. If you don't have money to give, well, sell something and give that away. Seems to be what he's saying. 
And what's amazing about what Jesus is saying here, you know, I think he's right. The best way to stop possessions from having control over you, because I think that's what the man with the barns, his possessions were controlling what he would do. The best way to stop them from having control over you is to give what you have away. Think if you were the man in the parable. Would your first thought be about building bigger storage barns? It probably would be. It probably would be. A few years ago, we built a second shed in our backyard. So we already had one shed. Don't have a space. We decided we're not going to build a garage. We'll build a second shed. I am regretting not building the shed an extra two feet by two feet. <laughs> because I already think, well, do we need a third shed? Like, <laughs> right? We, our first thought is about building bigger storage barns. It's, it's not about, I mean, yes, we need to get rid of some stuff, and we know that. But, but we'll accumulate the stuff long before we have the space to, to deal with it. If you suddenly came into more money and you play like the, you know, if I won the lottery game or if I rolled up the rim game or whatever, um, if I won the lottery and got a million dollars, is getting a bigger house one of the first things on your list? The world strives after such things, Jesus says, but what about followers of Jesus? Are we really different? Would your first thought be, what would God want me to do with this money? Or would it be, how might God use this money to bless other people? Or how can I use this money to strive for, seek, or build the kingdom of God? What would your true gut reaction be if you suddenly had way more than you needed? Would it be to give it away to those in need whom God loves? Or would it be to get something for yourself that you have been pining away for? In the end, the question is not about what would you do if you won the lottery, though. It's about what will you do with your life right now. It's a question that Jesus intends to be both spiritual and economical. The two cannot be separated. Your choices about how you spend your money and how you live your life, those are spiritual choices. Your relationship with your money and your possessions can determine your relationship with God and vice versa. And Jesus warns his followers about the dangers of money and possessions. He gives them that warning more than anything else. Jesus talks about, the Bible talks about uh, love the most. And second place is money and possessions. Fortunately, you only get a sermon on money and possessions. That, that I'm, I'm way less imbalanced than the Bible is. You know, you get way more about love, hopefully. Jesus talks about this, and he warns them that we have, to sort out, we have to sort out our relationship with possessions and money, and it's fundamentally because we are stewards of what God has given. We're accountable to God, and using what we have from him in his service for his glory and for the building of his kingdom, that's what we're supposed to do. And here Jesus reminds us that if we examine where we spend our money, we will know exactly what we care most about. The use of our money is a major spiritual practice that we don't think about very much in spiritual terms. 
and often that lack of thought has dire consequences. We need to get this straight as followers of Jesus. We need desperately to be set free from our anxiety about money and stuff and instead put our money where we really want our hearts to be. Jesus tells us in verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where do you really want your heart to be? Is it in having the latest gadgets or the best clothes or the nicest house or the best car? Do you want your heart to be consistently centered on yourself? Then spend it all on yourself because that'll be the result. Or do you want your heart to be focused on others as Jesus' heart was focused on others? Do you want your heart focused where God wants it focused? If so, then take a close look and start letting go. Be generous and give. Each week you're asked to give at church. Why? Because it's a reminder that all that we have really belongs to God. Giving is a spiritual practice that frees us from the illusion that our possessions, that, you know, that my possessions are mine, and they're mine to do with as I please. Giving sets us free from that. The offering is a reminder of our stewardship. It's an act of trusting God to work through the church for the building of the kingdom. And we believe that God has called us as a congregation to try and reach out beyond ourselves, to reach out to others, to, to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ, to let people know that they are forgiven, that they are reconciled to God, and that they are loved beyond all measure. And we want to find more and more ways to do that. Uh, the elders of this church last week uh, decided that on Easter Sunday... Um, we're going to receive a special offering in addition to the regular one. And this is going to be to provide funds to do a community outreach day next fall. We don't have all the plans worked out of what we're going to do. Um, but instead of putting it in the budget, we wanted to give the opportunity for people to just be generous and say this is going to go to bless the neighborhood in some way. So we're going to do that. We're also called to continue building partnership with those who are serving in our inner city. And, and today we have a motion at our annual meeting to give money from our Thanksgiving fund to support uh, a staffing shortfall that Winnipeg Inner City Missions has this year. We're called to continue supporting programs that benefit those who are among the most financially poor in the world through Presbyterian World Service and Development. And you, in fact, have been very generous already in all of these kinds of areas. I don't mean for this to sound like we're not doing a good job, because we are. And you may even start to ask, because today, sort of a big discussion in our meeting today is really about the building and a future building. Why not just do all this good stuff and stay where we're at? Why build a building at all? Is that not just a storehouse or a barn for our congregation to enjoy a better environment to worship God? Isn't that just kind of building a bigger thing and our story seems to say we're not supposed to do that? But I don't think so. 
because the new building is not primarily for us, and we need to keep this in our minds. The new building is what we will build. It will be our work and our sacrifice for the sake of other people, for a neighborhood. The new building is for a community that will need public space and will need a place to gather, to be inspired, to be generous, and giving people in our world and the city that needs greater and greater generosity. Giving to the church is not just about giving your tithe or your offering to God. That is the fundamentally important thing. But it's also about supporting and strengthening the ministry of this place so that people other than yourselves will benefit and so that people alongside you can also grow in generosity and giving and service to others. Now, the vision for a new building is actually not about growing our congregation for the sake of having a bigger church. It's a way of being in a neighborhood to promote the gospel, to serve those in need spiritually, socially, economically, in every way that we can to see their lives transformed in the name of Christ. It is building the kingdom of God. We give to the church because that is giving away. That is giving to God. That is building the kingdom. And that is trusting that God's will can be done on earth. Let us pray. Loving God, we pray that you can continue to uh, spark generosity within us and give us opportunities to be able to give uh, freely of what you have blessed us with. We give you thanks for all that you give and for your provision. We ask that you can develop our trust and our faith in you to remove anxiety from us, um, around, particularly around issues of finances and possessions. God, take that away and help us to continue to trust you and your Son and your Holy Spirit. Amen.